Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the national lead. We have to do better. That's the message today from the Minneapolis police chief in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd. The chief today acknowledging that parts of his own police department are indeed broken. He promised he will support policing reform. Reform not just happening in Minneapolis, of course, where Floyd was killed, but in cities nationwide. And today, George Floyd's brother, Philonis Floyd, called for action, testifying on Capitol Hill, asking lawmakers there on the House Judiciary Committee for help to stop the pain that he and many in this country are feeling right now. George called for help, and he was ignored. Please listen to the call I'm making to you now, to the calls of our family and the calls ringing out the streets across the world. The Minneapolis police chief said today he will withdraw from negotiations with that city's police union to conduct, quote, a thorough review of the contract with the police, as CNN Sarah Seidner now reports. History is being written now, and I'm determined to make sure that we are on the right side of history. Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo laying out a plan for his tarnished police department to move forward following the death of George Floyd at the hands of now four former Minneapolis officers. People are tired. They want action. Without ever mentioning the four officers involved by name, the chief revealing two key measures of his plan to change the department. One, the immediate withdrawal of contract negotiations with the Minneapolis Police Union until a thorough review of how the contract can be restructured to provide more community transparency and flexibility for reform. And the other, to implement the use of an early warning system to identify misconduct. What our city needs now more than ever is a pathway and a plan that provides hope, reassurance, and actionable measures of reform. But the chief acknowledged none of this will happen overnight. It's a, it's a process. This is, this, is not a, this is not a sprint, but we have to do it right. I have to do it right. The so chief acknowledged none of this will be accomplished overnight. Arredondo's plan has the backing of the city's mayor. We don't just need a new contract with the police. We need a new compact with the police. One that centers around compassion and accountability. Last month, I asked the chief what he thought of the three other officers who didn't stop Derek Chauvin from pressing his knee down on Floyd's neck. Being silent or not intervening, to me, you're complicit. So I don't see a level of distinction any different. Today, he was asked if he stood by that belief. I don't put policies out to say that you should only react or respond if you're a two-year member or a five-year member or a 10-year member. And if policies or subculture get in the way, then I expect and I demand one's humanity to rise above that. Meanwhile, Minneapolis TV station KMSP is now reporting that Chauvin was in talks to plead guilty before his arrest, which the state attorney general denied last week. I really don't have any any idea of what um, the negotiations or anything like that. That's simply way too early to begin that conversation. Uh, At this point, uh, we are preparing to try this case. 
Across the U.S., at least 12 cities and municipalities have started their own police reforms, like working to ban police from using chokeholds. California Governor Gavin Newsom directing police in the state to stop training officers to use that tactic, while Washington State Governor Jay Inslee calls to restrict the use of chokeholds in his state. The Black Lives Matter movement also taking center stage in many arenas, including tonight's NASCAR race in Virginia. Driver Bubba Wallace unveiling his newly painted all-black race car with the hashtag Black Lives Matter written across the side. On the hood, two hands, one black, one white, intertwined with the words compassion, love, understanding written beneath them. Wallace is calling for NASCAR to ban the use of the Confederate flag at races. No one should feel uncomfortable when, they're, when they come to a NASCAR race. Speaking of compassion, love, and understanding, I just had a chance to, seconds ago to sit down with Police Chief Arredondo one-on-one, and he told me that he did have a chance to meet with the family, uh, that he apologized to their face, and that they responded by hugging him. And he said it was a very powerful moment. I also asked him about police unions and if they have a role in not allowing officers who should not be on the streets uh, to stay at departments. And, and he said this, and I thought it was remarkable because he is now saying he's not going to work with the police unions if change doesn't happen. He said if they're not listening to the voices that are screaming out, they will ultimately be contributing to the harm of our society, not the good. Jake? Hmm. Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. Joining us now, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley and Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. Thanks, gentlemen, for being here. You're both part of a police reform and racial justice working group that the U.S. Conference of Mayors launched earlier this week. Part of the group's initiative is to come up with alternatives to dismantling police departments. Uh, Mayor Cranley, let's start with you. What changes is your group considering? Well, here in Cincinnati, we went through a court imposed process back in 2002. I was a city councilman at the time and helped negotiate that. And it is widely considered a role model across the country. And I like to describe it as having three major components. First, change in use of force, banning chokeholds, using the baton less, changing from escalation to de-escalation. Second is transparency and accountability. Uh, Body cameras provide enormous transparency. We have them outfitted on our officers and having a citizen complaint authority to look into specific allegations of, of, of misconduct. And lastly, and not least importantly, is changing our model to focusing on repeat violent effects rather than focusing on mass arrests. And what we have found over the last 10 years is that we can both reduce arrests and reduce crime at the same time. And those are the, from my point of view and from Cincinnati's experience, will be the, some of the values that underpin what uh, the, the police commissioner and I and the, the other members of the group will be working on. Commissioner Harrison, um, a lot of critics say that part of the reason it's so difficult to take quick action against a quote unquote bad cop is because of police union contracts. Um, The working group you belong to has mayors and police chiefs or commissioners from six major cities. No leadership from any police unions. Uh, Are police unions on board with the reform measures that you're discussing? Well, we're working with the mayors and we have 
uh, subject matter experts in the in the likes of former police commissioners and, and police chiefs and other experts working with us to look at uh, Obama's 21st Century Task Force report and other reports like one uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot wrote in Chicago and and even the U.S. of Mayors to look at what we could add to or take away from or modify to look at recommendations going forward. Here in Baltimore, we're in the third year of our decree, which is the most expansive, the most comprehensive in the history of the country. We're in year three. Much of what people are marching for and protesting for and begging for and demanding, we are already doing here in this city and other cities that are underway with consent decrees and in reform initiatives that I like to call transformation. People are asking for reform. What we're looking for is transformation. And what people want in America is a different kind of policing and police services that treats people with dignity and respect, but still provides public safety to keep people safe. We can do both at the same time, provide public safety and transform our departments. Mr. Mayor, let me ask you, Democrats uh, on Capitol Hill are calling for reforms, but most of the cities where these troubling incidents of police brutality have happened are cities run by Democrats. Now, I know you personally found your local Innocence Project. You have been active for years in trying to right injustices caused by the judicial system. But where have other Democratic mayors been on this problem that's been going on for decades, if not centuries? Well, Jake, it's a great question, and I appreciate your acknowledgement of the Innocence Project, where we've gotten innocent people out of prison in Ohio, over 30 people. Um, Look, Cincinnati was helped enormously by a Justice Department that took civil rights seriously. And this was not a, you know, left-wing group. It was John Ashcroft, who was the attorney general when we negotiated our group, when, when we negotiated our changes in, in 2002 when I was a, a young city councilman. And I happen to believe that if you look at the long history of civil rights, it has always required uh, a strong federal role uh, for protection of the constitutional rights guaranteed by the 14th Amendment and, and the Bill of Rights, et cetera. And it would be nice if the Justice Department would again look to work in we call ours the collaborative agreement and it was endorsed by our fraternal order police when it was adopted and is still supported and so it was a collaborative process but the but having the justice department actively involved made a really big difference um going uh, forward i think candidly would help a lot of democratic mayors uh, around the country and uh commissioner let me ask you um Obviously, police have collective bargaining rights like any other group of people who work for the government, whether it's it's teachers uh, or, or anyone. Do you think police unions do more harm than good? Well, I don't know that answer it that they do more harm than good, but there are certainly agreements in those contracts that prohibit police chiefs from taking swift, certain and decisive action certain things come to our attention uh, in the form of bad behavior by police officers. The harm that does this, it ruins the relationships that we have with our community when we cannot take the appropriate action as swift and as decisive as we need. And then uh, because the community has an expectation that when it's brought to my attention, I would respond appropriately. Uh, And so I am not always, like many chiefs are not always able to take the appropriate action or what the community expects, pays for, and deserves. So in that regard, 
sometimes those contracts can be very, very harmful. Uh, other regard, it, it, it protects officers from executives that would be overbearing and would do things outside of the process that are, are not within regulation and are harmful. So it, it, it has its place, but it does limit what police chiefs can do when we need to do it. All right. Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley, Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison, thanks to both of you for being with us today. We appreciate it. As calls for police reform grow louder, the White House has been, as of now, silent about what President Trump might support, if anything. But he is tweeting about the proposal to have a discussion about removing the names of Confederate generals from military bases. That's next. Plus, one state now has a record high when it comes to the number of people hospitalized. For coronavirus, the alarming trend in multiple states coming up. In our politics lead today, after two weeks of protests, marches, calls for justice and more, President Trump is finally going to have a discussion about race tomorrow, we are told. This will be with community leaders in Dallas. But today, yet another of his top advisors says systemic racism is not a problem in the United States. And the president's tweets seem to distract from some of the real issues being discussed. Again, he tweeted today about military bases named after Confederate generals. CNN's Caitlin Collins takes us inside the White House's efforts to find a coherent message to address racism in the United States. As Republicans rush to respond to overwhelming demands for police reform, all eyes are on the White House and the leader of their party. He's important. If he doesn't sign off on it, it's a wasted exercise. President Trump's aides are preparing to present him with legislative options, but questions remain about what he'll support. The White House is also working on crafting an executive order, though it's still unclear what that will include. We do believe that we will have proactive policy prescriptions, whether that means legislation or an executive order. So far, Trump's response to the unrest across the nation following George Floyd's death has been muddled. He's invoked law and order, called for governors to use force on unruly protesters, and promoted conspiracy theories on his Twitter feed. The last time he talked to reporters, he denied there are systemic race problems within law enforcement. And today, one of his top economic advisors said there's no systemic racism in the U.S. at all. I don't believe there's systemic racism. You don't think systemic racism against African Americans in the United States? I will say it again. I do not. In Dallas tomorrow, the president will host a roundtable on race relations with law enforcement officials and faith leaders. But sources say he's also aiming to make an announcement while in Texas on police reform. Yesterday, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Jared Kushner huddled with Republican lawmakers about what they could agree on. We're not going to get into the specifics, I think, to negotiate it in the press. We would do a disservice to the senator. Some of the president's political advisors fear that his response to Floyd's death has been confusing and incendiary. And polls showing him trailing former Vice President Joe Biden have raised alarms within the Republican Party. Amid fears about potential Election Day consequences, Trump met with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at the White House today to talk about competitive races. In turn, Biden has seized on the opportunity to contrast himself with Trump. In an op-ed today, he wrote that Trump's hate-filled, conspiracy-laden rhetoric is inflaming the racial divides in our country, but just fixing the way the president talks won't cut it. Now, Jake, after the Pentagon said earlier this week that top officials there were open to renaming military bases named after Confederate leaders, 
The president tweeted this afternoon that that won't be happening on his watch. He said these monumental and very powerful bases have become a part of great American heritage and a history of winning, victory and freedom. He says, therefore, my administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military installations, putting him directly at odds with his own Pentagon secretary for the second time in a week. All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, thank you so much. A little context for just two of the Confederate generals after whom U.S. military bases have been named. Braxton Bragg led soldiers in the Mexican-American War. He owned slaves at a sugar plantation in Louisiana before leading Confederate troops to defeat against Ulysses S. Grant in the Battle of Chattanooga, which led to Bragg's ignominious resignation. Henry Benning presided over Georgia's secession convention from the United States of America. He became a brigadier general in the Confederacy and ultimately surrendered to the North in the Battle of Appomattox in Virginia. Both bases, we should name, were named after the losing army generals, not right after the war as an attempt at reconciliation, but in the 1920s when Confederate leaders started dying off. I want to bring in CNN's Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. And Barbara, to be clear, the Pentagon brass military leaders, they were open to having a conversation about renaming these installations uh, that were named after generals who, let's be honest, were traitors to the United States. Named after generals who picked up arms against the United States and were responsible, although so many decades ago, still for killing American soldiers. Look, what the military had in mind uh, was to start what they called a bipartisan conversation in the United States about how to proceed on this very sensitive point, though it's not sensitive to a lot of people. A lot of people think it needs to be done in, in the year 2020. There are military people who uh, support keeping the names. There are military people who think the names are very divisive, and especially to black service members who go to work every day on these bases. So they wanted a bipartisan conversation to see if they could come to a way ahead. Even today, the Army was quietly looking for names uh, for a potential blue ribbon panel to begin to discuss this. But the president shut it down. And by shutting it all down, he has basically ruled against his defense secretary, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and several members of the Joint Chiefs who wanted that bipartisan conversation, Jake. You know, just a conversation is what we're talking about, Barbara. And let me, let me bring Caitlin Collins back in. Caitlin, why not just even have the conversation about this if military leaders were trying to do so in a bipartisan way? What's the politics here? Well, the White House is using the same defense that they did in 2017 when the president came out against pulling down those Confederate statues or removing them from prominent places where they were, which is basically where does it end? They were implying that if you start renaming bases like this or taking down certain statues, then people will start calling for statues like George Washington to be pulled down. Of course, that is not an argument that many people have made or anyone really. But really, Jake, the question is, you know, the president often makes arguments like these. They feed well with his base. The question is, does it still? Because we've seen a lot of public opinion change over the last two weeks as you've seen the unrest across the nation or in response to George Floyd's death. And so far, the president's response to that has been to maintain his position on kneeling in the NFL and maintain his position on not renaming these bases or moving mil Confederate statues. Yeah, it just seems like he has his base sewn up. It might be an opportunity to try to expand it, but what do I know? Caitlin Collins, Barbara Starr, Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time. George Floyd's brother, 
fighting back tears on Capitol Hill today, asking lawmakers to stop the pain and enact police reforms. His words. Next. I'm here to ask you to make it stop. Stop. In our national lead today, one day after George Floyd was laid to rest, his brother, civil rights leaders, and law enforcement officials took to Capitol Hill to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Felonis Floyd, in an emotional opening statement, asked lawmakers to honor his late brother by making his killing at the hands of police a catalyst for change. The people marching in the streets are telling you enough is enough. The people elected you to speak for them, to make positive change. George's name means something. It is on you to make sure his death is not in vain. CNN's Manu Raju joins me now uh, from Capitol Hill. And Manu, um, Floyd also got emotional when, when talking about the officers involved. Yeah, he held back tears. It was an emotional hearing all around. The tone was very serious from members on both sides as they were uh, grappling with the gravity of the situation and acknowledged how difficult it was for them to watch the video of George Floyd being knelt on by uh, that officer in Minneapolis for eight minutes and 46 seconds. What George Floyd said is it felt like watching it for eight hours and 46 minutes. And when he talked about it, he said he pleaded for it to stop and he wants justice to be served. He pleaded for his life. He said he couldn't breathe. Nobody cared. Nobody. People pleaded for him. They still didn't care. You don't do that to a human being. You don't even do that to an animal. His life mattered. All our lives matter. Black lives matter. And Jake, what he is asking for is to stop hiring corrupt police officers. Those were his words. But the debate on Capitol Hill going forward on how to do that will continue. Democrats have their own plan. A lot of it would set national standards in dealing with trying to crack down on police tactics. Republicans want to force that to let states make a lot of those decisions, incentivize states to ban things like chokeholds. So that debate will continue. But the House Democrats, Jake, want to pass their bill before the end of the month. Jake. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. CNN political commentator Angela Rye and CNN legal analyst Laura Coates join me now. Uh, the tone of this hearing, I have to say, was less combative than we're used to between Democrats and Republicans. I want you two to take a listen to, to some of the House Republicans today. Let's roll that tape. Today is a day to set our politics aside and focus on sound policies for our country. Hopefully... We can have both parties working together to actually accomplish something here and not just point fingers. This committee has a history of working together. Let's do this and let's get with the president and the Senate and make a difference. Angela, let me start with you. Are you optimistic that this might be a sign that Democrats and Republicans can can actually work together and, and come towards some solutions? Well, Jake, I think the proof, quite frankly, is in the pudding. Um, Folks have been yelling Black Lives Matter since the death of Trayvon Martin. And we know how those cases turned out. 
um, we know that not much has changed. And we've seen reform take place little by little. Um, and even with some of those reforms in place, Jake, police departments tend to run afoul of the rules. And so the question really becomes not just will this measure um, be bipartisan, but the question really is, um, are there enough well-meaning people in city governments, in state governments, and at the federal level who are willing to ensure that police officers are held ac accountable, that department funding is tied to some of the solutions that are put forth? And I think on a larger level, there is a groundswell right now, Jake, about defunding the police. Are people willing to divest from police departments and pour much needed resources into investing into marginalized communities and black communities? That is where the rubber will meet the road here. I know there are plenty of activists, many of them friends of mine, who are saying that this particular measure doesn't go far enough. It is the beginning of a conversation, but it is exactly that because a lot more needs to be done. And, and Laura, I want you to take a listen to one of the president's uh, top defenders on Capitol Hill, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, uh, talking today about working with Democrats on this. There is not a legitimate defense of chokeholds or lynching or bad cops that get shuttled around, and you will be able to count on Republican cooperation as we hone these ideas and hopefully pass them and get them to the president's desk. Where do you think this ultimately ends up, given the fact that even if there is some bipartisan agreement in the House of Representatives... Uh, this is going to have to go to the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. And though there's an effort there, uh, and Senator Tim Scott's been active in a lot of these issues uh, when it comes to body cameras and the like, um, there is going to have to be bipartisan agreement for anything to actually happen. There will be. And of course, the idea of there being a bipartisan support for this is going to be a very important step, because as we know, as much as we'd like to have well-meaning people and people who say what they'd like to have happen, we're going to have to have legislative buy-in, but it's also going to be more than that. It'll have to require the executive branch to buy-in and also the judicial branch, because you're going to have to have a holistic and comprehensive approach here. It's going to have to include perhaps tying funding in order to have some national standards and using the power of the purse. It's going to be about that national registry. It's going to be about having to track those officers who are problematic and about the state and local levels and individual police departments doing what they need to do to enforce. And finally, qualified immunity will have to be looked at, as is the standard by which officers are judged and the use of force they use. That falls in the lap of the Supreme Court. And so while I want there to be buy-in, it's got to be holistic across all branches of government. All right, Laura Coates and Angela Rye, thank you so much. Always good to have you on. Up next, several states seeing a major surge in coronavirus hospitalizations since Memorial Day, forcing one state to activate its emergency plans. Stay with us. Alarm bells are going off in our health lead today. A spike in coronavirus ICU patients in Arizona has officials warning hospitals there to prepare to activate emergency response plans. At least a dozen states are now seeing significant increases in hospitalizations for coronavirus since Memorial Day. So far, no direct correlation has been established, but in May, a number of states did relax their social distancing and stay-at-home guidelines. There are currently more than 112,000 deaths in the U.S., with a race for a vaccine speeding up, as CNN's Erica Hill explains. Sobering new data about coronavirus-related hospitalizations. Up in at least a dozen states since Memorial Day weekend. 
In Arizona, 79% of the state's ICU beds are currently in use. The director of health services asking hospitals to activate their emergency plans and reduce or suspend elective surgeries. What concerns me um, is do we have the systems in place to ensure that uh, a case in a community doesn't lead to a cluster, doesn't lead to an outbreak, doesn't in- lead to a healthcare system once again getting getting overwhelmed. Hospitalizations also up in Utah, where Republican gubernatorial candidate and former Ambassador John Huntsman today announced he has tested positive. Across the country, 19 states reporting a rise in new cases over the past week, including Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina among the first to reopen. Much of the Northeast seeing a decline. It has to be done right, and we have to stay disciplined, and the evidence is all around us what happens if we're not. The push for a viable vaccine is gaining speed. The U.S. government says it will fund and study three experimental vaccines this summer, including one from Johnson & Johnson, set to begin human trials next month. Even with the vaccine, there may be other steps that we have to continue to take uh, to control coronavirus. Face coverings and social distancing likely here to stay, as the nation's top infectious disease expert warns the old normal won't be back anytime soon. When you open, that doesn't mean that everything is okay and you just can just do whatever you want. You still have to practice a degree of caution. New CNN polling shows Americans are split on returning to their regular routines and whether the worst is behind us. Women are more likely than men to exercise caution. Just 38 percent say they're ready to resume those routines. NASCAR is ready for fans to return this weekend in Homestead, Florida. Major League Soccer will be back on the pitch July 8th as the MLB Players Association proposes July 10th for opening day of a shortened season. And new cases are reported among football players at Florida State and the University of Central Florida. Jake, we also just learned from Governor Jim Justice of 24 cases in West Virginia that he says are now linked to four different churches in his state, an outbreak of between five and eight cases at each one. The governor asking the congregations to please keep up with social distancing and wearing masks at their services. Jake. Erica Hill in New York, thank you so much. With human trials of the coronavirus vaccine starting next month, we're going to take a look at what that might mean for the public availability of the vaccine. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Continuing in our health lead, the United States will pay for and conduct studies on three specific experimental vaccines for coronavirus this summer, one by Moderna, one by Oxford University and AstraZeneca, and the third by Johnson & Johnson. The Wall Street Journal was first to report this news. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he hopes a viable vaccine will be ready for the public by January. Let's bring in CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen. Um, Elizabeth, why the focus on these three particular vaccines? You know, the first two make some sense, according to the experts I've spoken with. Uh, Moderna and AstraZeneca are sort of leaders, two of the leaders of the pack in this. They're already uh, well into their clinical trials, and so their phases one and two. And so for them to start phase three in July or August, 
that makes sense. They're also two different platforms, two different types of vaccines, which is really important because, as we've heard so often, we need lots of shots on goal. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is a little bit more of a mystery. They are not among the leaders of the pack. There are several others that are ahead of them. Also, their platform is essentially, their vaccine technology is essentially the same as AstraZeneca. So it is unclear why they're in this group, but there may be others added to this group. So I don't think we should take these three and say, all right, that's it, no others. There may be others to follow. When will we know if any vaccines are effective? You know, I think by the end of the summer, we will have some idea um, on AstraZeneca and also on Moderna. Um, it may not be the answer that we want, and I want to be upfront about that. These vaccines might not work or might not work terribly well. It may take a couple of tries until we do get to one that works. And there's a lot of concern that the Trump administration is going to put pressure to just accept the first one that comes along, to say, all right, that looks good, let's go. And that's really a concern because the first one may not be the best one. The FDA has now authorized the first coronavirus test that also looks for mutations of the virus, though it's my impression that there has been no indication that the coronavirus is is mutating. So uh, explain more about this. How significant is it? Right. So, well, actually, viruses mutate in little insignificant ways all the time. What we look for are sort of those big mutations that would make us say, huh, we need to get a different kind of vaccine or we need to be handling this differently. It's always good to be on the lookout for it. You never know. I mean, it could happen. No one thinks that this virus is any is particularly susceptible to mutating, but there's nothing wrong with being on the lookout for it. Right now, we are seeing these dramatic increases in hospitalizations since Memorial Day in at least 12 states, including Arkansas, Arizona, California, Oregon, Utah, Texas, South and North Carolina. Is this simply a matter of, okay, we reopened, so hospitalizations were bound to increase? Has anyone established why this is happening? That's what all the experts are telling me, Jake, that there is no mystery here. They said it the minute that everything reopened. They said, wait a few weeks. We are going to see an increase in cases, an increase in hospitalizations, and likely an increase in deaths as well. It is super simple. You do not need a PhD in immunology to understand this. Viruses travel from person to person. The closer people are together, the more it will travel, the more cases you will have. A study analyzing 2,000 hospitalized patients in Italy and Spain found that those with type A blood seem to have an increased risk of respiratory failure because of the virus. Patients with type O blood seem to have more protection. What do you make of that? You know, it's interesting. So this is a study of 2000 people, which is really, you know, relatively small. It also hasn't been peer reviewed. So other scientists haven't sort of put their stamp of approval on it. We would want to see this in more people to say, yes, this is a thing. Just because one study in 2000 people saw it does not mean that it is a thing. It would be interesting to know if there was a correlation between blood type and susceptibility to COVID-19. But right now we just don't know. Right. Such a, so many mysteries remain about the novel coronavirus. Elizabeth Cohen, mm-hmm. thank you so much. Always good to have you on. Coming up, it's being called a complete meltdown. People standing in line for hours during a pandemic to cast their votes. And the problems could spell disaster for November, people worry. Stay with us.
We just got a preview of what voting might look like in November during a pandemic, and frankly, it's not pretty. In Georgia, some voters waited for hours in the heat to cast their ballots. State officials blame coronavirus, saying that many poll workers were afraid of getting sick, so officials had to close voting sites and scramble to get new workers. Voters tell CNN there were multiple cases, however, of voting machines not working. The bulk of the issues happened yesterday in counties where minorities make up nearly half of the population. CNN's Abby Phillip joins us now live to discuss. And Abby, Republican officials statewide say that these problems largely occurred in counties led by Democrats. Uh, What are the Democrats saying in response? Yeah, well, they're right to some extent about that. But Democrats are saying that the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is the official responsible for managing elections in the state that, and that ultimately the buck stops on his desk. But as you know, Georgia is a state that Democrats want to flip in 2020. They believe that that state is moving in their direction. There's been a lot of attention going back many years, but especially in 2018, about voting irregularities that they say disadvantage and and uh, disenfranchise minority voters. Ultimately, Jake, the blame goes all the way around. There are a lot of people who are uh, who are deserving of some blame for what happened here. It comes down in a lar- in large part to poor planning and the inability to have contingency plans for some of these coronavirus-related problems. But also, notably, this surge in mail-in votes uh, that we saw in Georgia, uh, there was a disparity. Minority voters were less likely to request mail-in votes, so they were going to show up in person. And in those parts of the state, there were just simply not enough uh, voting locations, not enough uh, ballot boxes. uh, And that's why we saw some of those long lines. And and we're less than five months away from the November elections. Uh, What kind of solutions are being proposed to make sure this doesn't happen again? Two Senate races, a presidential race, a lot going on in Georgia. Yeah, the the November general election is the Super Bowl of voting in this country, essentially. And I spent the day talking to election officials who basically say more money is needed. The head of the Commission on uh, Election Assistance, a Trump appointee, actually said to me, uh, the federal government needs to step up very quickly and get more money to these states because it's very expensive uh, to uh, procure more locations, to uh, offer more options for people who are voting, to hire a lot more staff or bring in more volunteers to deal with all of these ballots. There are a lot of practical things that need to be hap- to happen. They also say uh, questions about absentee ballots, whether or not voters and election officials can track where they are in the system is a huge problem. So many voters in Georgia told me uh, they never received their absentee ballots. They weren't sure if they were ever received by the state. And right now, there's not a great way to track where they are in the system to make sure that they get in and are counted. Abby Phillip, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks so much for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.